pretty sure that's my wife's favorite song. What does it mean to be human? Fyodor Dostoevsky once wrote, every ant knows the formula of its anthill. Every bee knows the formula of its beehive. They know it in their own way, not in our way. Only humankind does not know its formula. But what if knowing the formula of what it means to be human was as easy as listening to the creator of humanity? Not sure why I heard a few amens after that song, but because <laughs> it's more than a country song, isn't it? It's, it's a reality that we, we often live in. I can remember 2006, fall of 2006, and I can picture this in my mind like it was yesterday. I was sitting in a chair in a counselor's office with my wife positioned next to me, and the thought running through my head was, this is over. That, that all the dreams that I'd had for what my life looked like in a year, five years, ten years, were slowly slipping through my hands. And I walked into that room despondent. I walked into that room helpless. I walked into that room feeling like I'd exhausted every single resource. And, and that Kelly had exhausted every single resource too. And, and that we gave it our go, we gave it our all, and it wasn't going to be good enough. And I can remember the, the pain of that moment and the questions of that moment, the reality of, of broken dreams. And, and it's more than a, than a country song, isn't it? I mean, if you've been there, you know the, the pain of a relationship that feels like it's fracturing or maybe does fracture, uh, a friendship that goes awry and is no longer what it used to be a marriage that's on the rocks or past the rocks, and you just go, listen, there's no way we're going to make it out of this together. You know the pain of that moment. Last week, we talked about this idea of marriage in the ideal, the way God designed it, and we all walked out of there feeling really good, but also knowing that if we are married or have friendships or relationships, that it doesn't always look like that, right? The picture of marriage in the in the ideal is shared friendship, shared mission, shared union, shared intimacy. And to that, we all go, yes and amen. That sounds really good. And in the back of our mind, we think, but we're really far from that. So if you walked out of last week thinking, we're really far from that, I'm here to give you some hope today where you'll go, well, we're not too far from that, Paulson. My goal today is to acknowledge the reality that sometimes relationships break. Sometimes relationships fracture. Sometimes the very things that bring us the most joy also weave into our lives some of the biggest questions, the deepest hurts, and the most pain. But my goal is not to leave us there. Because I believe that there is a God who is greater, a hope that is bigger, a love that is stronger, and it's a message that regardless of where you're at today, my guess is you need. Because God's design for us is that we would share life together with other people. But we all know that that's really hard. That video we saw of my friend in Mosul was uh, an indicative of the fact that relationships fracture and relationships break both on a personal level but also on, a, on an ethnic level, on a country level, that that's a reality that we live in in a broken world. 
And I want to do my best today to explain to you where that comes from, why it's a reality, and then I want to point your eyes up to the ceiling and say there's something bigger and greater that holds us even in the midst of our brokenness. Genesis chapter 3, will you open there with me? Genesis chapter 3, and we're following last week where, as we said, we painted this picture in our series, This Is Us, an exploration of of what it means to be human. We painted a picture of relationships and friendship and marriage in the ideal. Side by side, arm in arm, body to body, heart to heart. And we ended last week in chapter 2, verse 25 of the book of Genesis, where it says, in a Man and his wife were both naked and they were not ashamed. It was this picture of complete, full intimacy, being known, and yet having nothing that they felt like they needed to hide. Now that perfect picture lasts all of a half of a chapter of the scriptures, okay? And then we jump into chapter 3. Now the serpent, verse 1 of chapter 3, was more crafty than any other the beasts of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will surely not die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. So so just a quick time out. Let me just invite you into the process that Adam and Eve embark on, okay? Because it's a process that my guess is we're going to be able to relate to, that we'll see happen in our lives at some point in time, and, and it's, this is the first step, God's truth is distorted. Did God really say, fill in the blank, did God really say you shouldn't eat it? And they go, yeah, well, God even said we shouldn't touch it, which God didn't say, but the first step to turning away from God is distorting his truth. Second step is that God's goodness is questioned. Notice that the serpent says back to Eve, listen, The reason God doesn't want you to eat that fruit, that tree, is because he's holding out on you. God has really good stuff he designed you for, but he's going to keep them from you because he's that kind of God. God's truth is distorted. God's goodness is questioned. Have you ever thought that? God's, God's holding out on me. There's something better out there, but he's not letting me go there. Three. God's plan is supplanted. God's plan was not that Adam and Eve eat from the tree of wisdom, but that they eat from the tree of life. You see, God's design for humanity the entire way along was that they would come to him to find wisdom, not to another tree, not to another source, that they would come to him to find life and to fulfillment. But when Adam and Eve choose the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the tree of wisdom, what they're saying to God is, God, we don't want to learn from you. God, we don't want to be mentored by you. God, we think we know better than you. And if we were God, we'd do a better job at being God than you're doing at being God. So they choose the other tree. God's plan is supplanted by their own for God's pathway is rejected. 
So Adam and Eve, designed to live in relationship with God and relationship with each other, they very quickly find themselves off course. Will you look up at me for just a second? Whenever, whenever we reject God's pathway, we also resist God's design. And we wrestle with, if that's the choice that we make, we wrestle with the division that enters in to our world, to our lives, to our relationship, to our friendship, because God designed us to live with each other. But when we fracture relationship with him, look what happens next. It says, and in the eyes, verse 7, both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, Adam and Eve. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. Anybody had that dream before? That you, you wake up after a full day of high school, and you, you're, you're naked in your dream, right? You've, you've gone through the entire day, and you go, oh, no, I forgot something very dear to me, Right? That's where Adam and Eve, this is sort of the picture of them waking up and going, oh my goodness, we are, we're naked. And remember we said last week that this, this being naked is more indicative of the condition of their soul than it is of their body. That they are naked in the sense that they are completely known and knowable. That there's nothing that they want to hide. There's nothing that they wish they could take back. And what happens immediately is when sin enters the picture, they sow fig leaves. And the relationship that they have with each other is fractured in the same way that the relationship they have with God is fractured. See, here's the, the, the big idea. It's this, the broken connection to God leads to fractured relationship with everyone. So whether it's the conflict in the Middle East, this, this is what's happened. Whether it's the conflict at your workplace or in your neighborhood, this is what's happened. Our, our relationship with God is not just a vertical relationship. The way that you interact with God has an impact on the way that you interact with everybody around you. And so when Adam and Eve reject God's plan and reject God's pathway, it has massive implications for the way that they live with everyone and everything else. See, this truth, you can see this truth in movies that we watch, can't you? That the brokenness that we often live in in humanity is just, it's a reality. In the books that we read, we can see this truth come out. Listen, you can turn on the radio in your car on the way home. And my guess is they might not say, hey, we've fractured relationship with God and therefore we fractured relationship with others. They will just say, there's a pain in loving you. It's in many songs. Let me just give you a few examples. A few examples. Janis Joplin, take it. Take another little piece of my heart now, baby. Break it. Break another little piece of my heart. I know you will, right? <laughs> Neil Sedaka, I beg you, don't say goodbye. Can't we give love just one more try? Come on, baby. Let's start anew, because breaking up is hard to do. Don't take ya, right? <laughs> or... Maybe a little bit more modern, the modern prophetess, Kelly Clarkson. But since you've been gone, I can breathe for the first time. I am so moving on. Yeah, yeah. Thanks to you, now I get, I get what I want. Since you've been gone, right? 
Whitney Houston, bittersweet memories. They're all that I'm taking with me. So say goodbye. Please, don't cry. We both know I'm not what you need, but I... No. You're really going to hang me out to dry like that? I pictured it way different in my head. I pictured you guys... Listen, Taylor Swift has made a career off of this reality. Because I knew you were trouble when you, right? She writes about breakups at every chance she gets. We are never, ever getting back together. You go talk to your friends. I'll talk to my friends. You can talk to me. But we are never, ever, ever getting back together like ever. <laughs> Literally, that's what it says. Right? You're going, well, hey, Paulson, I don't know. That's just a few songs. Listen, there is an entire genre of music committed to this truth. It's called country music. <laughs> Every song tells that story. And see, we know it deep down inside, and, and yet we struggle. We wrestle with it, don't we? And here's the, here's the reason why. Because we talked about this image of God that's over our lives. This weighty, beautiful image of God that we carry. But we are designed to carry the image of God in communion with God. But when we are out of relationship with God, the image of God, rather than shaping us and making us, actually crushes us. It's too much weight to bear apart from the creator who designed us to walk with him. And so we have these built-in rhythms of connection and relationship that we long for. But in our brokenness and our lack of connection with God, we start to give that to every single person around us. Because the truth of the matter is, is a broken connection to God leads to fractured relationships with everyone else. Let me give you a picture. You may have played with magnets when you were a kid. And magnets are, are polarized, and so they're designed, just like you are, to connect and to stick. And that, that's the picture of a marriage. That's even the picture of a friendship, is that you would find people you could walk with to be encouraged by, that they'd be steadfast truth speakers in your life. But what sin does is sin turns us. It flips us, that brokenness. And instead of being magnetized to each other, we are polarized from each other. If you've ever flipped a magnet, you know that after they're turned, you cannot stick them back together. And the design that was meant to stick actually turns into something that repels. That's the picture of Adam and Eve, designed to stick. And yet, we see six verses in, they're sowing fig leaves, and they're saying, listen, we don't think we can do this together any longer. You may have been there at some point. God's design is that we would attract and stick, but our design, or our, our brokenness often causes us to push back and repel. See, Paul gives a one-sentence description of marriage. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 28. Those who marry will face many troubles in life. <laughs> Never read that in a wedding. <laughs> I haven't seen any couples with tattoos of that on their arm, right? But it's, it's true. There's some, in the midst of the beauty, there's this reality. Yeah, 
when I'm out of connection with God, everything else in my life suffers as well. What I want to explore today is more fully what happens when relationships go wrong. And then my, my goal at the end of it, I'm asking you to, to stick with me for the next few minutes because my goal at the end of it is to paint a, such a picture of the devastation in light of the design and then to lift our eyes to the Savior of it all. Verse 7. Here's the way that the story continues. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife, they hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees. We said last week, Adam and Eve designed to know fully and to be known fully. There were no regrets, no I wish I wouldn't haves, no I hope they, does, they don't or she doesn't or he doesn't find out about this. Nothing in their mind where they think, I wish I could go back and redo that thing or replay that time. And they are, because of that, naked and unashamed. An open book, fully known and fully loved. But what we see as sin enters the picture is they start to create division, not only with God, but with each other. And at the very core of what's going on, this intimacy that they so enjoyed for all of about 10 verses is replaced by shame. Shame says there's parts of my story I'm unwilling to share. Shame says there's some things about me I wish I could take back. There's some failures that I wish I could undo. But in, in the midst of all of that, the words that shame speak over our life are these. If they really know me, they'll reject me. And so I've got to hide. I've got to cover myself up because I can't allow myself to be really fully Known because if I'm fully known, there's no way that I will be fully loved. Look at the way that this is demonstrated, and we see the underlying truth that Adam and Eve believe, or the thing that they believe that causes them to live in this way. It says they hide from God, and then verse 9, but the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was, say it with me, church, I was afraid. So immediately, the freedom that they're designed to walk in is replaced by the fear that they start to believe. If I'm seen, if I'm known, if I am found out, I will be rejected. So I've got to hide from God, and I've got to cover myself from everybody else. If you read through this chapter, there's two words in light of this intimacy that you start to see that jump out to you. And I, and I think they're the masks that we often wear, the coping mechanisms that we often go to, because a lot of us have a shame narrative that plays in our mind. We have this loop tape that plays in the background. If I'm really known, I'll be rejected. If I'm really honest, I'll be pushed away. And it, it undergirds a lot of the life that we live. And there's two responses that we have to that. One of them is just like Adam and Eve. We're going we're gonna to cover ourselves up. Here's what it looks like for me. I'll let you see my successes. 
but I'll hide my failures with everything I have. Yeah, sure, you can see, you can see good Ryan, funny Ryan, happy Ryan, but, but I will not let you see beat down, hopeless, hurt Ryan. And we do this in relationships, don't we? It's that line, no, everything's good, when we know everything's not good. Typically, if you have a hunch, not everything's good, it means things are pretty bad, right? Yeah. And when we decide, when we, when we cover ourselves, here's what we're saying, I refuse to let the other hurt me. So I'm going to protect myself. I'm going to cover myself up. But when we say, I, ch- I refuse to let you hurt me, we also say, I refuse to let you love me, which is why the shame narrative is so powerful in a marriage and so powerful in friendships, because if we cover ourselves up, we also, we prevent ourselves from getting hurt, but we also prevent ourselves from being loved. Here's the way that the great author Brennan Manning puts it. He says, if we conceal our wounds out of fear and shame, Our inner darkness can neither be illuminated nor become a light for others. So if I cover it up, it's just going to stay there. It can't be healed and it can't be a healing balm for people that may have walked through a similar thing. And Adam and Eve, they cover themselves up. They start to play the game. The second thing they do, if you read through the passage, it says it a number of times, is that they, they hide. They hide. My... My son, Reed, he um, is three going on four, and he absolutely loves to hide from us. I think it's sort of cute, and I think it's sort of fun. My wife freaks out a little bit, which I think is sort of cute and sort of fun also. So it's really a win-win for me um, when he does. But the thing is, is he's getting pretty good at it. He can still, he's small enough to fit into our little um, laundry hamper, but he's, he's old enough where he knows, okay, this is a fun game, and instead of giving myself away, I've got to be quiet and shh, don't let mom and dad know where I am. So we'll look for him for like 10 minutes. My like, read, read. And it's sort of cute when you're three. It's not quite as cute when you're 30 or 40 or 50 60, however, we, we do this in relationships, don't we? Here's the way it typically looks, um, and this is stereotypical, I'll admit, but oftentimes for men, it's just, we're going cold. We're not going to talk about that. So there's some things you can talk to me about, but we really communicate pretty clearly. There's some things, that, there's some places I'm unwilling to go and I don't want to go. For some guys, that turns into an addiction to pornography. And you go, well, how does, how does shame turn into an addiction to pornography? Well, we long for that deep connection. We need that intimacy with other people. And when we're unwilling to share and be vulnerable with our own lives, we'll choose a cheap substitute and go to a screen instead of going to the real thing in order that we might be really known. See, pornography is saying, I want to satisfy a need without allowing myself to be really known. And it's hiding. It's hiding. And see, you can only be loved when you allow yourself to be known. 
And so Adam and Eve, their fractured relationship with God starts to have ripple effects immediately to the lives of people that they're closest to and the relationships that they value most. Okay, let's chat for just a second. My guess is that shame has somehow impacted the closest relationships in your life. My encouragement to you over the next few days is to think about how. And then to start taking some steps, and we'll talk about them at the very end, of to break out of those shame narratives and those shame patterns. Verse 11. Here's the way the passage continues. He said, and this is God, who told you that you were naked? Now, just a quick time out. Anytime God asks a question, he is not asking it because he does not know. Okay? God's not going, hey, who told you you were naked? And and where are you, by the way? God's not asking because he's like, I must have misplaced Adam and Eve. I could have sworn I put them in the garden (laughs) naked, but now they're clothed. And No, God's asking in order to evoke a response from humanity. He wants them to have to say it. Here's what happened. Verse 11, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate it. And then the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. This is the original hashtag alternative facts, okay? God asked a yes, no question, right? Did you eat of the fruit of the tree that I told you not to eat of? And they're like, um, so let's talk about that woman that you put in the garden with me, which is the first blame casting that Adam does. First blame is, God, this is your fault. You solved this problem of loneliness by giving me this beautiful naked woman in this garden. Let's talk about how bad you are for a second, right? And then it's, okay, God, it's not your fault. It's her fault. She offered me the fruit. She's the one who talked me into it. And God goes to Eve and says, Eve, did you eat of the tree? And Eve says, it's the serpent's fault. It's always somebody else's fault, isn't it? And you see the partnership. So they're designed to be side by side, arm in arm, body to body, and heart to heart. And what starts to go quickly awry is this partnership that they were designed to have. And instead of partnership, we see them casting blame at each other. I read a story this week of this CEO He took a job following a a former CEO who had been there a number of years, and the outgoing CEO takes this new CEO aside and says, hey, I've I've given you three envelopes. They're marked number one, number two, number three, and inevitably, you're going to make some bad decisions during your time here, and when you do, I, I encourage you, open these envelopes and read them. It'll give you some good instruction. And so this new incoming CEO, things are going great for a few months, but if you've ever started a new job, you know things can go great for a few months pretty easily. And then things started to hit the fan, and he made a bad decision. And he went to envelope number one, and envelope number one said, blame me from the former CEO. And so he does. He gets in front of the shareholders, the stockholders, and he said, listen, the former CEO set up these methods and set up these processes and and." The reason we made this decision is, well, it was his fault. And they said, okay, great, 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 wonderful, wonderful. 
Next time, he goes through a few months, this new CEO, and things are going well, and then he makes another bad decision, so he goes to envelope number two. And envelope number two, he opens it up, and, and it says, blame the board. So he does. Blames the board. So listen, the board's an absolute mess. Our structure is way off, and, and this is set up, and I inherited this, and, and so we're going to do our best to move forward. And everybody says, okay, okay, great, wonderful. And a few months go on, and he makes another bad decision, and he goes to envelope number three. And he opens envelope number three, and envelope number three says, prepare three envelopes. Because <laughs> you can only keep blaming other people for so long, right? Here's the, here's the problem. Let me give you three problems with blame. One, anecdotally, whenever you point the finger at somebody else, you've got how many pointing back at you? Yeah, three fingers pointing right back at you. And blame the scriptures would say it even more strongly. Look at this in Romans chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself. Because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Whenever we point the finger at another person, God says, we actually stand in the place of condemnation. Second reason, it's really a counterproductive thing to blame is because we actually choose self-preservation instead of selfless love. So we choose to defend ourselves. We choose to say, I, I, am, I am not okay taking the fall here. I'm not okay accepting responsibility here. And I'm going to do everything I can to preserve my own skin, to preserve my own hide. And if I have to step on you and trample you, then so be it. Instead of the call to lay down our lives, we start to cover ourselves by pointing the finger at others. And it actually prevents us, the third thing, it prevents us from actually growing. Because will you look up at me for just a moment? If you are unwilling to fail, you are unable to grow. You look at the times in your life where you've grown the most, my guess is those were painful times. And my guess is those things hurt. And sometimes what it takes is an ownership of looking ourselves in the mirror and saying, I blew it. I blew it. Adam and Eve are unwilling to do that. They're going, it's his fault, it's her fault. God, it's your fault. It's your fault. And if you continue, you're going to see God enter in. Verse 14. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you've done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the fields. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. They call this the proto-euangelion, the gospel before the gospel, that God's going to be victorious over his enemies. He's going to squash them down. Verse 16, the woman, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Anybody want to say amen? Okay. Not the guys, you're not allowed to say amen there. You're just supposed to go, I know, baby, I know. Okay. <laughs> and your desire shall be 
for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife, you've eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your brow you will eat bread until you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return." My guess is, if you go back and you read through these quote-unquote curses in Genesis chapter 3, you start to see their impact all around you. The things we, the things we love most, the things we're called to most, that relationships are fractured, we'll talk about it in just a second, that the, some of the greatest things in life, childbearing, now carry with them this deep pain in addition to the joy. The same could be said of work. That there's deep pain in addition to joy. That God's good design, good creation is not broken completely, but it's certainly fractured. That the best parts of being human now carry with them the deepest pieces of pain also. And so you see this played out in relationships. In verse 16, Listen to this, what God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, and in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire, he says to Eve, shall be contrary to, or against, or even for your husband. You're going to be swimming against stream now, Eve. This side-by-side, arm-to-arm, body-to-body, heart-to-heart type of relationship is now broken. It's contrary to your husband, but he shall, say it with me, rule over you. If you go back and you read Genesis 1 and 2, the design was that Adam and Eve would rule over God's creation together as co-heirs. The design was that together they would have dominion and that they would subdue God's earth together. It's the same word as rule. They were called to work and keep together. And now instead of ruling together, they get into this place of ruling over. And what started out in service alongside of each other turns into dominance over each other. The movement very clearly goes from ruling together to dominating over. And so we see this, you guys. We see this in relationships all the time. Marriage is probably the clearest picture. You see these power struggles, and they typically revolve around five things. They revolve around sexuality. They revolve around money. They revolve around work or time. They revolve around children, and they revolve around something else. Oh, roles. That's it. <laughs> roles. Who's going to do what? And their power struggles. But here's the core of them. Will you look up at me? Here's the core of the power struggle. The quest for dominance. Under the quest for dominance is a question. Am I enough to be loved? Will I allow myself to be loved? And will I freely give love? Because the seeds of doubt in that question sprout into the fruit of dominance. When we don't feel like we're going to be loved. You show me a woman who knows that she is loved by her husband, and I will show you a woman who's happy to be a side-by-side partner. 
You show me a man who knows that he's respected by his wife, loved by his wife, and I'll show you a man who's happy to say, I'm going to be a side-by-side partner. I'm going to walk in the way God intended us to walk. But when we doubt the truth of that, we turn to places of dominance rather than service, which is God's design. So it's a pretty bleak picture (laughs) that intimacy intimacy turns into shame, partnership turns into blame, and what's designed to be service together turns into dominance over each other. And my guess is whether you're married or single or divorced or wherever you are in this place, that you can see those three influences of broken relationship with God playing out in your life in some way, shape, or form. So the question is, okay, Paulson, well, what do we do with that? And here's what I want to say to you. In the midst of a chapter that's filled with really bad news, there's also some beautiful news. Look at verse 9 again with me. You see that God refuses to leave Adam and Eve in their brokenness. He comes to them and he cries out, say it with me, where are you? Where are you? I love you, I'm for you, I'm good. In the midst of the brokenness, I am good. And here's the deal, friends. If you can hear God this morning, whether it's in a relationship situation or just personally, and you feel like you are at the end of your rope, if you hear the words of God calling you this morning, calling you out, it's not so that he can crush you down, it's so that he can heal your pain. Because when God calls Adam and Eve out, it's not to be retributive towards them for their sin. It's to be restorative for them that they might walk in his good design, in his holiness, and in his goodness. Here's the way that Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, I believe that as often as I transgress, God is more ready to forgive me than I am ready to offend. Somebody say amen. That's great news. That's great news is that God is not afraid of your sin. There's a theology floating around that says God can't be in the presence of sin. Garbage. Chapter 3 of the Bible. Whoa. He enters in. Thank you, Jesus. He enters into our brokenness. He enters into our sin. He enters in to call us forth, to call us out, to paint a picture of something better. And look at the way that he does this in verse 20 and 21. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. Verse 21, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Look up at me for a moment. You will do one of two things with your life. You will either make clothes to cover yourself, and they'll look like your resume, and they'll look like your accomplishments, and they'll look like all the good things that you've done in order to be okay. Or, or, you will turn back to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and say, I need you to cover me. And 2,000 years ago, Jesus stretched his arms out on the cross 
after living the perfect life, stretched his arms out on the cross to die the atoning death for your sins, walking out of the grave saying, the check is cleared, it's paid in full, you're forgiven, you are healed, and now allow yourself to be covered in my righteousness alone to stand faultless before your throne. That's the righteousness we all need. That's the covering we all need because we all are broken and we're all looking for clothing somewhere. The question is, do we find it in the one who says, my life I give for yours. And see, God first calls them out and then God covers them up. And here's the truth of the matter, friends. This is such good news is that gospel truth, the reality that you are drenched in grace, that forgiveness is yours, that you've been made holy by his blood, and that you have been completely, totally forgiven. Gospel truth is our resource for relational fruit. And we've got to learn how to preach ourselves the gospel. We've got to learn how to walk in the rhythms of grace. We've got to learn how to tune our heart to say, yes, you've come to make your blessings flow far as the curse is found. And I want to just end with four pictures of how we do that. This is going to be quick, a whole other message in and of itself, but we're going to land the plane here. And this is what walking in the gospel looks like first that we resolve to live in vulnerability rather than hiding. Okay, so let me, I just want to speak to all the, the married men in this room for a moment. I think this is on us, you guys, to take the first step, to choose courage rather than cowering in fear, to choose to say, I'm going to, expose a piece of myself that I would rather keep hidden. And I believe that the truth that I stand on in the gospel and the grace that covers me and the love that Jesus has for me is enough to open my heart up a little bit and reveal it to you. Can I encourage you, whoever, man, woman, married, unmarried, can I encourage you to pursue emphatically rather than cowering fearfully? Second, that we would choose to embrace a posture of confession rather than accusation. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus tells a, a, a bit of a parable and he says, hey, why, do you, why, do you, why are you so apt to point out the sawdust in somebody else's eyes when there's a huge plank in your own? We don't have to own things that aren't ours, but my guess is if you're in a relationship that's sort of on the rocks or that's hit some hard times, that some of it's yours. And here, this just in, all of the relationships that you've been in that have been painful and hard, you are a common denominator in all of them. And so what if instead of accusing other people, we said, all right, God, we stand on the gospel we are completely forgiven, and therefore we can say, yeah, I've messed up. I blew it, and I'm still loved by you, and I'm still accepted because of Jesus by you, and I'm still known by you. What if our posture was confession first instead of accusation and trying to cover ourselves? Third, that we would choose forgiveness instead of record-keeping. 
And friend, when you've been given grace and you get it, then it makes a whole lot of sense for grace to be what you start to give. The Archbishop Desmond Tutu said it like this, without forgiveness, there is no future. He was saying this of his nation after apartheid in South Africa, but it's true of friendships, it's true of relationships, it's true of marriage. If we're un, Because we are going to wrong, if we are unwilling to forgive, we have no future together. So what if we made a choice to just say, I'm walking in forgiveness rather than keeping a record of wrongs? And finally, that we would take the pathway of love, of laying down our lives for each other instead of ruling over one another. This is gospel truth that gives birth to relational fruit. If I could go back to 2006 Ryan sitting in that counselor's chair, here's what I'd say to him. I would say to him, I, I know that the pain is deep. And I know you've shut down and you're trying to run away. And I know your wife wants to talk to you and you don't want to talk. But here's the other thing I know, Ryan. I would say, look up at me, Ryan. And then I would say this, there's a hope that's deeper than your pain. There's a love that's deeper than your shame. And there is a God who stands above it all. And I'll say the same thing to you this morning. There's a hope that's deeper than your pain. There is a love that's greater than your shame. And there is a God who says, will you come to me, allow me to cover you, and then live in the beautiful reality of being re-released to live as image bearers of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Let's pray. I want to just take a moment today and... and before we go running out of here, I want to pray over, specifically over the marriages that are in this room. And so I'd invite you, will you just open your hands, especially if you're married, will you just open your hands up to the sky and this is our posture of just saying back to God, God, we, we hear you and we want to receive from you. So Father, I pray over, specifically over the marriages in this room today. I know that the enemy would love for us to live in shame and regret. And Father, would you call my friends out of hiding today by your grace? Jesus, we know it's really easy to point the finger at someone else, but Lord, I pray that we would be so grounded in the gospel this morning, in the love that you have for us and the forgiveness that's over us, that we would be able to also look ourselves in the mirror and, and admit that we've blown it and to know we're still deeply loved by you. So Father, where confession needs to happen, would you allow that to be a reality? And Jesus, I know that there's some marriages that have just slipped into power play patterns. Father, I pray, would you stir each heart in this room 
but the love that you have. Father, for all of us, we come saying back to you that we are broken and yet drenched in grace. That oftentimes we live in pain and yet we have your provision. That we are marred carriers of the image of God, but under your mercy every step of the way. And so, Father, may your truth allow us to live the lives that you designed us to live. We pray in the powerful name of Jesus. And all God's people said, amen, amen. Hey, we love you, South Fellowship Church. If you're able to stick around, we'd love to share with you some of the things that God's done in the last year and some of the things we dream about him doing in the future. As you go, would you go knowing you carry the image of God and would you fight at every turn to be someone who says no to shame, no to blame, and no to dominance. We love you. We'll see you next Sunday. God bless you as you go. Our elders and prayer team will be up front. If we can pray for you or serve.